Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 to 46. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a winepress in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this, his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Now, there comes a time where a governing system becomes so flawed, its weakness is so exposed that its end is inevitable. I guess we see it in politics all the time. I've recently been visiting friends of ours in churches in Riga, in uh, Latvia, and some of the oldies there speak of Soviet times and the period immediately before the collapse of the whole Soviet system and coming down of the Great Wall. And they talk about how they would sit in the factories at lunchtime. You had to have an hour listening to broadcasts from uh, the party at lunchtime. They would sit in the factory at, at lunchtime and everybody, they would just talk through it. Everybody knew it was a busted flush. Uh, before the wall actually came down. If you've watched Laura Koonsberg's The State of Chaos, you might notice something similar in our own current political system at the moment. But it's not just politics. You see it in sport, don't you? Anybody who watched the slow-motion catastrophe of the English one-day international men's cricket team will recognize that, and I can see one or two of our Australian friends uh, giggling as I mention that, or you might say equally the Australian rugby team. But it's there in financial systems as well, isn't it? So people in 2006, 2005 knew that the system was bust. It was just a matter of when. And people might say the same of the financial system today. And it's not simply that cracks appear more like gaping chasms, 
They open up and people plunge into them. Now, at such moments, certain things tend to happen. Some cast around for alternative options. Who's going to rise to the challenge to lead according to this fundamentally flawed model? Others just change sides, and there's talk of rodents and ships and of desertion. And yet others cling desperately to the wreckage, you know, like the last people on the Titanic, hoping beyond all hope for some sort of a miracle. Now, over these last weeks, we have been considering just such events, not with regard to financial systems or politics per se, certainly not sporting chances. We've been considering something of infinitely greater significance And center stage in 33 AD has been, in Jerusalem, has been one figure. His moral, spiritual, intellectual courage is unlike anything the world has ever witnessed. It's one of the things least observed and most admirable about this individual. He says it as it is. He isn't bothered about optics. He calls it right and true, and he does what is right and leaves the consequences to God. It's extraordinary. He is the ultimate righteous one. And so here we are speaking about God's kingdom. We're talking about eternity. We're talking about heaven and hell, absolute authority, destiny, power, and dominion. And we've had an interchange between the leading spiritual and political figures in Jerusalem and Jesus. And right at the center of this whole piece of these three parables, we're considering the second of the three. Arguably, you might say this is the centerpiece of the whole of this final section of Matthew's gospel. And the issue is the location of God's kingdom today. Where is it? Where will we find it? How can we know we're on the right side of it? The location of God's dealing with humanity today. It's big, big stuff, you might say. And the parable shows us first the abuse of grace and the end of grace abusers. And then secondly, the extension of grace and God's exaltation of the grace giver. And my hope is that we might see very clearly which side we need to be on, the abuse of grace. Before we get going, I just need to be very clear that we're talking throughout this morning about first century Israel, not 21st century. Please understand that. We're not talking about Gaza and what's going on in the Middle East today. We're talking about events in 33 AD. Well, now, grace is an undeserved, free gift lavished upon a person who has done precisely nothing to deserve it. And there is no doubt from the parable that grace is extended to these vineyard tenants. Just glance at verse 33, and you will see the grace here. Here, another parable, says Jesus. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Consider the attentive care paid to the planting of the vineyard. 
provision. Consider the fence protection. Consider the wine press. No need for these tenants to contract out the process of pressing the grapes to some other who might take his own cut. Production. Consider the watchtower. You might say, here is an apartment fully furnished with security gates, a concierge, a gym, and a pool, all within the complex. Here is an office block with no luxury spared. Internet, organically grown fruit at the counter, suitably ethically sourced coffee beans, leisure space, or leisure space, socializing areas, we work before they went bust. The lavish grace extended by the owner But then the lavish grace simply makes the callous greed expressed by the tenants all the more abhorrent. 34 and 35. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. So the three envoys enter the vineyard in all innocence, given the lavish provision, who would not? Of course you'd be expecting... It's time to collect the rent. They beat one, they killed another, they stoned the third. I wonder how might we respond in such circumstance? Were it you, some off-site office in Venezuela or, or some other nation uh, dealing with your business, and, and, you're, and how might you respond in such an instance? Isn't verse 36 remarkable? Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Grace provided, grace extended, and does not verse 37 speak almost of a naivety on the part of the landlord, given what we read in 35 and 36? Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. Grace provided, grace extended, sacrificial grace. The callous brutality of the tenants is matched inversely by the long-suffering kindness of the owner. His patience, his desire above all that he might not need to exercise judgment, his concern for these tenants. Is it my will that a sinner should die, says the Lord, and not that he should change his ways and live? And then as a kind of rhetorical tool, verses 40 and 41 are brilliant. He speaks now, Jesus, to his listeners. When therefore the owner of the vineyard come, what will he do to these tenants? They said to him, he'll put these wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their due season. Of course they will. Of course that's the way he's going to act. Not to respond as he does would be bizarre. Would you not demand justice at this point? And is it not unthinkable to respond in any other way? God has to judge. I came across uh, this sentence by Miroslav Wolf. He was Yale professor and a survivor of the Bosnian genocide. Listen to him speaking about God and judgment and the idea that God might not judge. It takes the quiet of a suburban home 
for the birth of the thesis that God's refusal to judge results in human nonviolence. In a sun-scorched land, Bosnia, soaked in the blood of innocence, it will invariably die together with all pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. Of course, God has to judge. Of course, God demands justice. Of course, this is not revenge on the part of God. Of course, the punishment meets the crime. To suggest otherwise would be naively sentimental beyond imagination. Do you really believe that sort of thing? I was listening to a podcast yesterday with Jordan Peterson and his daughter, Michaela, an interview with Piers Morgan. And it is clear from the interview that Peterson believes in God. Uh, Michaela, his daughter, was teasing him for having dodged the question. And as she teased him gently, knowing what he really does and doesn't believe as she does, eventually he said, well, in his kind of Kermit the Frog type voice, I certainly believe in hell. Of course he does. Any reasonably minded sane thinker would. God has to judge. And without God judging, if God is dead, might is right. Anarchy prevails. So there is the parable. And I guess there are many ways in which we might take it at this point, many areas we might dwell upon. Uh, Notice the first thing, just to flow on from what we are talking about, that these words are on the lips of Jesus. It's Jesus demanding judgment and his hearers demanding judgment, and Jesus insists that God must punish and that this is New Testament religion. In the 1980s, it was common on occasion to hear a person suggest that Old Testament religion is full of judgment, but Jesus is the God of love and you don't find judgment in the New Testament. Well, clearly people who said that in the 1980s, they may have, their parents may have read the New Testament, but they certainly hadn't. Very ignorant thought. So we could talk about that. We could talk about the grace of God. I mean, his grace is extraordinary, isn't it? You should go on lavishing grace and lavishing grace and lavishing grace on a people who refuse to give him a moment's thought that God should continue to allow the next breath, the sun to rise, the harvest to be gathered, I think we could talk about the long-suffering patience of God as well. I mean, from our perspective, we can all too easily miss this. God doesn't rush to judgment. His grace demands otherwise. And it can often be three, four, five generations. Because God is so full of grace, before judgment actually falls on a nation or a denomination or a family... And we could certainly talk about the wickedness of any man or woman who abuses the grace of God. That God has given us, you and me, our next breath. Everything that is so good within this world, human love, kindness, stability in government, all the good things we enjoy, and the outrage, indeed the wickedness of refusing to acknowledge him?
Before we think about this parable's implications in that way, I'd like to make a comment about how all of these passages have been treated by myself and many others over the years. Too often, preachers seek an immediate point of reference, either in the personal lives of individuals set before them or in the present situation of church or state in which their church finds itself. Now, I hope you'll sympathize with the poor preacher and understand why preachers do this. Uh, There are real people sitting in front of us on a Sunday. We want to say something of real relevance. And therefore, there is a temptation to take passages like this and come, as it were, rather than thinking about them in their original context, going straight to us. And either it's suggested that the point of these parables is directly applicable to me straight off the page. I've been given so much, I owe so much, I failed to respond, therefore I will be judged. Or parables like this are taken and applied directly to a nation or indeed a denomination that has inherited so much, that owes so much, that fails so badly. J.C. Ryle is always worth reading. He has magnificent uh, words to say on these chapters, and this is where he takes it in his uh, brief expository thoughts. We see in the first place what distinguishing privileges God is pleased to bestow on nations. Certainly true of the West. We see next what a bad use nations sometimes make of their privileges. We see what an awful reckoning God sometimes has with nations and churches which make bad use of their privileges. We see in the last place that there are many hearers of the gospel in every congregation who are exactly in the condition of these unhappy men, the chief priests and the Pharisees. Now there's an example and all of those things are true straight off the page. But, you know, one of the keys to reading a parable is always to look at the context. And as we look at the context, we begin to see what this parable originally meant in its first telling. And I hope you will agree with me that this raises the level of the stakes far higher than little me or little denomination in 2023. Just look across the page, glance at verse 23. You can see who Jesus is speaking to. He entered the temple. That's where he is. He's in the temple, and he's speaking to the chief priests and the elders. Look down the column, verse 28. What do you think? He's talking to the chief priests and the elders. Verse 33, here, another parable. It's the same audience. These, then, are the leading figures of Israel. Jesus is speaking about Israel in the first century. That's certainly the way they hear it. Look at verse 45 and 46. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. So the owner is God, the servants are the prophets, the son is Jesus, the tenants are the people of Israel, her leaders, those in charge of the whole religious system. 
And therefore, in its first instance, the parable is about Jerusalem, the temple, its teaching, its law, its leadership, its sacrifices. And God's grace to Israel had come again and again and again and again. He had provided for the nation. He had made provision to relate to the nation. They were the epicenter of the kingdom of God on earth. They had all the privileges. We began by speaking about turning points in political or sporting or business affairs. This is of infinitely greater significance than the fortunes of the English one-day international cricket team or the current conservative government or even the whole Soviet bloc. This is about how God deals with humanity. This is a historic, it's a seismic moment. As Jesus declares to the chief priests, to the elders, to Israel, that the days of the temple are over, that Israel as a nation of any spiritual significance whatsoever above any other nation is gone. It's all done. It's finished. And so the question to the first century audience is, will we go on investing in this busted flush? Are we going to go on propping it up, trying to rebuild the temple, some great center of worship? Or will we recognize that the tide has turned, that the tsunami has broken upon the beach, that the whole busted flush is over, and at the front edge of that tsunami is Jesus Christ, and he is now the center of all God's operations and dealing with his people on earth today? I would want to suggest this is the most significant historical event, the two, three weeks we're dealing with here, in all of human history. And of course, it then leaves us asking, well, where do we look for God's kingdom? And that's exactly where Jesus goes next in verse 42. Have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone this was the lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes now to understand this we have to have a slight grasp on first century engineer civil engineering uh, not a big grasp a slight grasp don't panic and we also have to have a bit of a handle on psalm 118 so in the first century both the stone that set the building and that capped off the building were absolutely may I say, foundational. There were no steel girders driven 33 metres into the London clay. Thick bolts with irreversible screws had not been invented, and nor, incidentally, had defective reinforced autoclaved aerated concrete either. And the cornerstone on the ground at each corner had to be exactly square, perfectly chosen, a huge block, particularly when you're thinking of the temple. You may have seen the temple, a massive, massive block. And it held the four corners together and it set the direction of the walls in either direction from which they went. And the capstone at the top on each corner, which bound the walls together, was crucial. And Psalm 118 uses that architectural language. It's actually quoted three times in this narrative section of Matthew. 
And Psalm 118 speaks of two occasions, at least, on which Jesus was rejected, on which King David was rejected by the elite of Israel and driven out of Jerusalem. On the two occasions, David left the royal court only to be vindicated by God, to be brought back as God's righteous one, to enter through the gates as God's anointed king. So Psalm 118 speaks of God's king returning to Jerusalem, entering through the city gate and making his way to the place of sacrifice at the temple. And then we have this extraordinary language, the stone, that's God's king, that the builders, that's those in Jerusalem, rejected, has become the foundation stone. This was the Lord's doing, it's marvelous in our eyes. Did you notice Uh, how the righteous one was stressed as we had Psalm 180. Who is this righteous one who's going to enter through the gates of Jerusalem on whom all of God's temple, if you like, doings with humanity is now going to be founded? And now verse 43 and 44. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. The language is of seized, dragged off from you, chief priests. It will be given to a people, that's not to the nations, it's to a newly constituted nation built around this foundation stone. Verse 44, the one who falls on this stone, I guess we're to picture somebody in the stonemason's yard tripping up over it, will be scattered, winnowed, And when it falls on anyone, we're to imagine the the stone at the top of the corner dropping down, they will be utterly smashed to smithereens. So this is very, very radical teaching by Jesus. It's about the complete end of Israel as an institution through which God's grace is mediated to the world. It's about the destruction of first century Israel. We're not in Gaza, we're in first century Israel. It's about a radical replacement of Israel, of all of her systems, of the land of Israel, the place of the temple where God dwelt, replacement of them, the end of them as of any spiritual significance whatsoever on the earth today, and the arrival of Jesus. This is about Jesus, as he positions himself not simply as the Son of God, but as God the Son, and as he takes the place of the nation Israel, the city Jerusalem, the land Israel, the temple, and the focal point of God's kingdom today. So there comes a point, doesn't there, in any system where you see that it's clearly a busted flush and people either start running for cover, you know, like rodents deserting the ship, or or they try and prop it up or they cling to the wreckage, you know, like some desperate person wishing it was like it was when I was a small child, you come across that, or they do the right thing and change sides. There's a great temptation to apply this to denomination and nation. I think there's lots of application for us there. There's a great temptation to apply this personally. It is certainly true 
that I will not build my life on the foundation stone of Jesus Christ, who deals with my sin, who is risen to reign, who welcomes me into God's kingdom, then I am building on a foundation of sand. It's interesting to see how the New Testament authors dealt with this. Turn to page 1099, page 1099. Here is Peter. It's the second or third, depending how you might like to count it, major sermon following the death and resurrection of Jesus by one of his disciples. And Peter says this. This Jesus, that is the risen Jesus who you crucified, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we might be saved. So what? Well, we can cast around for a new leader of whatever flawed human system by which we seek salvation for the human race. Uh, Let's find another scientist to cling to. Uh, Let's look for another politician. Uh, Let's look for another manager of our sports team. Some people seem to think their sports team will be the saviour of the human race. Uh, Let's look for another sociologist or another psychotherapist. I was travelling on the tube on Friday evening. I don't often do it, but uh, the lady sitting next to me was reading what looked like a really fascinating book. Do you ever find that? Uh, And now, with glasses, it's much more difficult to read the other person's good book without doing so very obviously. And I was trying to glance out of the corner of my eye at this book that she was reading. And the book was called Atomic Habits. Uh, I've forgotten the name of the author. Minor Changes to Small Habits. That with everything else around us collapsed, which I think many of the 20s and 30-year-olds in our age feel, with everything else around us collapsed, a tiny change can bring about a radical difference if you travel far enough. If you set the bearing one degree wrong from London and you're heading for Edinburgh, you might end up in the middle of the North Sea. But Jesus is not looking for an atomic habit change. This is not just a minor tweak. This is the end of a whole system with Jesus as the only way. We can cling on desperately for some miracle to save us within the hold vessel in which we currently paddle through life. Well, Jesus tells us that supernatural miracle is him and his rule. And his concern is that we recognize that all other vessels are profoundly flawed and failed, and he alone can bring God's salvation. I'm going to lead us in prayer. We do praise you, our Father, for the extraordinary courage of King Jesus. We praise you for your sacrificial grace lavished upon us. 
Thank you that you have not yet come in judgment upon us. And we praise you for King Jesus, the foundation of your kingdom, and the place from which your salvation flows out to the ends of the earth. Please help each one of us, we pray, to build our lives upon him and to find in him confidence for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.